Thank you very much indeed, Thomas, for doing such a great reading. Um, thank you, for David, for such a great set of prayers, and for Neil and uh, helping lead the service so well. Um, before we look further at this passage together, um, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, um, thank you that you work through your word in the world, uh, that uh, we have not been cast adrift, uh, we don't live in a vacuum. You speak to us, you're a relational God. And therefore, we pray that you would speak to us personally through this passage of Scripture today, and that we would all be blessed through it. Amen. As the man Zacchaeus sat on the balcony eating his breakfast, his eyes roamed over the city of Jericho that stretched out before him. It was a beautiful garden city, irrigated by natural springs. It was the Eden of Palestine. The white of the closely interlocked houses contrasted with the greenery of the trees, hence why it was called the City of Palms. It was a prosperous and a wealthy city, located on a major trading route that led to the capital, Jerusalem. Bustling, thriving, and one of the three main tax centers set up by the Romans. On the one hand, the man Zacchaeus counted himself fortunate that he had been in the right place at the right time. He had made some shrewd political moves, and now he was chief commissioner of the taxes in the city on behalf of the Romans. He was the kingpin of the Jericho tax cartel. He ensured that the Romans were paid the taxes they demanded, and under him was a multi-layered pyramid of tax collectors, all funneling the tax money they collected from their fellow Jews back to him. On the other hand, he was all too aware of the cost to him of his job socially and religiously. The people of Jericho, they hated him. The people of Jericho held him, and indeed all his colleagues who worked for the Romans, in complete contempt. You see, not only was he a traitor, collecting taxes on behalf uh, of the Roman forces, but he was a corrupt traitor. The taxation was riddled with corruption. He, as was all those working for him, were on the take at every level and with every opportunity. They were overtaxing the people and keeping the surpluses for themselves. Zach himself had grown filthy rich at the expense of his fellow Jews. And he had been ruthless and heartless. He had extorted money from many who couldn't afford it, only to line his own nest. And they rightly hated him for it. Many had suffered injustice and harm at his hands. Now, the irony was that his name, Zacchaeus, actually meant righteous, pure, and clean. Knowing how his life had worked out, no doubt his parents would not have been quite so bold in their choice of name if they had their time again. Often he walked down the street and some hidden individual from an alleyway would shout out, Scab! He was ostracized, he was isolated, and he was alone. He had no friends except those in the taxation business. And even though he was fabulously wealthy, he had no social standing. He was pariah status. He was even barred from going to the temple. But of late, 
he had felt that he was reaching a tipping point. Even though he had everything that money could buy, he had found it had not brought him real and lasting satisfaction. And he was growing weary, weary of the isolation. He was growing weary, weary of people's hostility. He was weary of life. And coupled with this dissatisfaction was something else, a strange stirring in his heart that he had not felt before. He had been hearing on the grapevine of this great religious teacher, this man who was different to all others who had come before him. This man spent his time with the, the unreligious people, with the untouchables. He was often associated with the tax collectors, and many that class the, the society were class as the scum. He had even called one tax collector, Matthew, to be one of his closest disciples and followers. Zacchaeus was curious. Zacchaeus was drawn. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus for himself. Now, he knew that Jesus was due to pass through Jericho this very day on his way to Jerusalem. So he had a plan. He quickly finished his breakfast, and he slipped out the door into the street. Soon he sensed he was nearing Jesus as the crowd became denser and more tightly packed. Now, he was a, a short man, a Danny DeVito of his time. Not only could not, he not see anything, but people were elbowing him, treading on his feet and jostling him, uh, supposedly by mistake, although he suspected they knew all too well what they were doing. This was hopeless. But then he hit, hit on a plan. He knew the route Jesus would take. He would get ahead of the crowd. He would climb a tree. And then he would have a ringside seat. He scurried up the road, hitched up his robe, when his short legs pumped away. And then he saw it. It was perfect what he wanted. It was a sycamore fig tree at the side of the road. It had a short 10-foot-high trunk and spreading, thickly vegetated low boughs. With all the energy of a young boy, he hauled himself up the trunk and perched on one of the boughs amongst the fleshy green leaves. Whilst he found it was a good vantage point, he was also pleased to note that he was concealed from all onlookers. He just wanted a private viewing. After all, it was not very dignified for a per person of his position to be seen up a tree. He sat there and he waited. The warm breeze pleasantly rustled the leaves and soon the crowd started a path beneath him. Soon he could see a small group and at its very center, like the eye of the storm, was the man himself. That must be him. That must be Jesus. He was almost going to pass directly underneath Jack Zacchaeus, but then, as he drew abreast of the tree, he stopped and he looked up directly at Zacchaeus. Their eyes met. And then he heard words he could not believe. Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Come down? He almost fell out of the tree with surprise. How did Jesus know his name? How did Jesus want to come to his house? Did he not know who he was? Did he not know who, what he did for a living? He was flabbergasted. What an honor that this righteous 
an upright religious teacher should want to come to his house, the untouchable, the defiled. In that society, to eat with someone was a powerful sign of acceptance and affirmation. And now Jesus was saying he was going to come and eat at his house. He scurried down the trunk of the tree. He almost fell out of the tree. He was hardly able to contain his delight and his sense of privilege. And as he led Jesus and his disciples to his house, he could feel the hostility of the crowd around him. He could hear their murmuring. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus didn't care. And what a meal that was that day. Oh, to have been able to overhear that conversation between Zacchaeus and Jesus. And after the meal, Zacchaeus rose to his feet and motioned to all present to be silent. And everybody present could not believe the words that then fell from Zacchaeus' lips. Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Nobody knew what to say. Now they were flabbergasted. This was amazing. This was totally unexpected. What on earth had happened to Zacchaeus? What had Jesus said to him? Jesus then said to him, Today, today, salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. What does Christ say to the alienated? What does he say? The first thing we need to be clear on is one of the effects of sin. And we could summarize one of the effects of sin in this word, alienation. Uh, With Zacchaeus, we see the effects of sin outworked to a very heightened degree. But that effect is true for all of us in different ways. Firstly, it's true for all of us in that sin alienates us from God. Uh, That was very clearly true for Zac. He was barred from the temple. Uh, He was a son of Abraham, but he was far from the God of Abraham. But sin also alienates in another way. Sin alienates us from people. Uh, Sin, if you like, brings relational ruin. It tears at the relational fabric of our lives. And that was clearly evident in Zacchaeus' life. Uh, He had made sinful, selfish choices, which had led to alienation. He was shint, he was uh, snubbed, and he was shunned. Uh, Things were not right between him and his fellow citizens in Jericho. What does Christ say to the alienated? Uh, We were not a party to the dinner conversation between Zacchaeus and Jesus in Luke's account It's not recorded as to what Jesus said to him. But you can bet that they got down to business. Uh, We probably get a good idea of what Jesus would have said to Zacchaeus when we look at the uh, Jesus' teaching recorded elsewhere in the gospel accounts. Uh, We know, of course, Jesus' teaching was 
twofold, uh, repent and believe. And no doubt, that is what he said to Zacchaeus over the dinner table. Zacchaeus, you need to repent, acknowledge your wrong, and turn from it. Zacchaeus, believe. Believe and trust in me. I am the one who can reconcile you to the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham. And that was the good news that Jesus proclaimed. And that was the gospel, the great news of the gospel. And it was a powerful message that transformed Zacchaeus's whole life. In the words of Romans 1 verse 16, it was the power of God for everyone who believes. And the gospel was powerful. It brought healing to the relational ruin in Zacchaeus's life. And it reconciled Zacchaeus in two ways. Uh, firstly, in his relationship with God. The gospel heals that relationship which is ruptured by sin. Again, Jesus says to him in verse 9, uh, Today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. You see, where there was no hope, Jesus brought hope. And that is what the gospel does. Doing what is otherwise impossible. Reconciling us to God. Re repairing the broken, torn relational fabric of our relationship with God. Verse 10 again. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You see what that means? Nobody is beyond redemption. In the words of that beautiful but familiar hymn, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. So firstly, the gospel heals our relational ruin with God, but it doesn't stop there. Because the healing balm of the gospel also heals our relationship with other people. Uh, no doubt, Zach had felt the increasing weight of his social alienation over the years. Uh, not only was he a traitor, of course, as we've seen, he was a, a thief, and nobody but nobody likes to be ripped off. Uh, there's no better way to rupture your friendship with somebody than to, to steal from them, is there? And yet that is what he'd done. And yet, do you see what the gospel does in the horizontal sphere of Zacchaeus' relationships? The gospel breaks this grip of sin on a person's relationships, and it transforms them. The gospel wonderfully equips Zach with the tools for repairing the rela relational ruin in his life. And we see it beautifully played out in the words he utters that day to all present. Verse 8 again. Uh, back in, Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, uh, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. That is true repentance. He is confessing his wrong and he is acting to put the wrong right. Uh, I've been on an amazing course uh, in the a, few month, a month or two, two ago now. Um, it was um, 
all about peacemaking and how peacemaking can resolve marital and family conflict. Uh, it was an incredible five days intensive course, and uh, the lady who took it had, was deeply experienced in this uh, whole realm of um, bringing the gospel truth to bear on situations of marital and family conflict. And it was amazing just to sit there and to, to soak up the stories that she came out with uh, time and time again. Situations she described where she at the time concluded, as did many present, surely there is no hope for this situation to be reconciled. And yet by the end of that process, in fact, she said nine times out of ten, the relationship was restored. It was incredible to hear those stories of the gospel bringing the tools to bring relational restoration where there was relational ruin. Uh, the course um, which uh, she ran was based uh, significantly on uh, the Peacemaker book, and she acknowledges this, and she's drawn heavily on this, and this is a fantastic uh, read. I had to read this in preparation for the course, and I have to say, um, I was delighted to do so, and I recommend it wholeheartedly to you. Now, I think as a church, you would have possibly engaged with this about 10 years ago uh, when John Irving was here. Um, I recommend reading it again. This is fantastic. Uh, the Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. Uh, one of the chapters which I really think uh, resonates with what we see in Luke chapter 19 is the chapter 6, which is entitled, Confession Brings Hope and Freedom. Confession Brings Freedom. And it just unpacks, and it gives this beautiful structure for applying the truth of the gospel in a very practical way to how we can confess effectively so that our relationships are restored. Uh, it starts off by picking up on this um, very pithy and relevant proverb uh, in Proverbs 28, verse 13, which says this, He who conceals his sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Confession brings real freedom. Is there anybody here who finds confession easy? Uh, I very much doubt it. Uh, I myself find it very hard. Why do I struggle with it? Why do you struggle with it? I think, if we're honest, the word is pride. It is very humbling and embarrassing to admit to somebody else, I have been wrong. And yet, to do that is so powerful and it brings incredible freedom and it restores relationships which otherwise would remain ruptured. And chapter 6 is beautiful in that it then picks up on what a true and healthy confession looks like and it sort of nuts out how we can sometimes drain the power out of our confessions by diluting them. And it has seven pithy pieces of advice to enable us to confess well and to enjoy the freedom that flows out of restoring our relationships through a good and healthy confession. I'm going to run through them quickly, uh, drawing on chapter 6 of this book. Uh, firstly, address everybody involved. We should confess our sins to everybody who has been directly affected by our wrongdoing. Uh, now, uh, 
some sins, it's acknowledged are sins which are really only just between us and God. You could call them uh, sins of the heart, things which we maybe think about, uh, thoughts we have which never then progress to the point where we actually do or say something to somebody, and that's between us and God. Uh, so it's right that we should confess those to God. But then there's another, another category of sin. Not only is the heart sin, but there are social sins where what is in our heart then expresses itself in some way in our behavior with others, what we say, what we do. So it may be uh, we have slandered others, we have stolen, we have lied. Uh, it may be things that we haven't done, which we should have done, uh, failing to help someone in need or ignoring somebody, whatever they be. Uh, the gospel says, confess your sins to everybody who has been affected by them. Uh, in other words, our confession should reach as far as our offense. Uh, that's what we see with Zacchaeus. Uh, don't you think it was amazing? He resolves to pay back everybody that he has swindled. And now, that must have been quite a process for it to go through. Uh, like any efficient taxman, uh, he would have kept good books, and so it was quite possible. But that's what he resolves to do, to pay back to everybody he has swindled. So that's the first principle of a good, healthy confession. Address everybody involved. A second one is very relevant uh, to all of us. Avoid if, but, or maybe. Uh, how often when we confess do we introduce conditional clauses, uh, the ifs, uh, the buts, and the maybes? But you know what that does? It actually drains the confession of its true conviction and power to bring healing. And it's very easy to do, to slip these conditional clauses in. And it's really coming from the pride, because we're wrestling, aren't we, to confess, actually, I've really made a mess of this. One of the ways we do it is we can maybe say, um, how often have you said this? I'm sorry if I've done something to upset you. Uh, do you see what's happening? Uh, the implication, I'm not saying I've definitely done something wrong, but if I have, then I'm sorry. But I'm sort of hedging my bets and trying to keep my cards quite close to the, the chest. Uh, another example, when we introduce uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps I was wrong. It's not very sincere, is it? Uh, maybe I could have tried harder. And then there's the worst of all, uh, the but word. Because uh, a but is particularly destructive. Uh, a but has a strange ability to cancel all the words that come before it. Uh, I shouldn't have lost my temper, but I was tired. There's the but. And it drains the energy. It drains the sincerity out of the confession. So secondly, avoid if, uh, but, or maybe. Uh, thirdly, admit specifically now, that's sometimes difficult to do. Uh, sometimes it's easy and we want to just brush over it quickly. I'm sorry. Move on. But to actually be more detailed about what we've done and why in truth it is wrong, that's tough, but it is very, very important. 
to name the wrong and to be specific. And it helps us in two ways. Firstly, in terms of those we are apologizing to, it helps convince them that we are sincere in what we say. But secondly, it also helps us to process the wrong that we have done and to realize, hey, this is what I need to change. Here's a working example. Uh, Say it's a work situation in the office. Uh, You go to a fellow employee and you say this. Hey, I know I'm not a very good work colleague to you. And you move on. Or you say this. Look, I know I've been very negative in my attitude to work over the last few months. If I'm honest, it's led to me being quite critical of others. And that has caused disruption in this office. And it was especially wrong of me to criticize your work in front of everyone else yesterday. Do you see? We're not brushing over it quickly. We're naming it specifically. And that is very, very powerful. Uh, Fourthly, acknowledging the hurt. Uh, You will know if somebody is confessing to you and apologizing to you, you're really trying to work out, do they mean this? And one of the most powerful ways that you can see that they mean it is if they acknowledge to you how they have hurt you. It's very powerful to put yourself in the shoes of the person you have offended and say, what would it be like if I had been on the receiving end of what I've done to this person? And then to acknowledge it to them. So we can say, hey, you must have been terribly embarrassed when I said those things in front of everyone else. I'm sorry I did that to you. You see what we're doing? We're showing that we know and we're acknowledging how we have hurt them. So, fourthly, acknowledge the hurt. Fifthly, now this is very, very important. And I think this fifth point is overlooked by many people in our society today. And it is this. Accept the consequences. Do what Zacchaeus does. And many people don't. Do all you can do to put the wrong right. It's the word we call make restitution. It is vital and it is so easily overlooked. And it is a principle found throughout the whole Bible. Uh, Go to the Old Testament, uh, Numbers chapter 5, verses 6 to 7. When a man or a woman wrongs another in any way, that person is guilty and must confess the sin he has committed and he must make full restitution for his wrong. Fast forward to the New Testament. And where do we see? Luke chapter 19, the account of Zacchaeus. Here it is, again, restitution. And it is, if you like, the flagship of the New Testament, which affirms and reaffirms restitution is still vitally important. What does Zach do? He didn't just say sorry and go on about his business. He put his money where his mouth was. Again, Luke 19, verse 8. He stands up and he says, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated 
anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now that would be incredibly costly for him to do. You know, in effect, he is giving up his ill-gotten wealth. He now makes good on his previous failures. Uh, he's doing two things, actually. It's quite interesting. Um, firstly, he's acknowledging a sin of uh, omission, something he's failed to do, which he should have done, and that is to be compassionate and generous to the poor. Because he now says, I'm going to be generous. I'm going to give to the poor. But he also admits his sin of commission. In other words, what he's done. I've cheated people, but I'm now going to make restitution. I'm going to give back not just what I took off them, but four times as much. Can you imagine what that would have meant for him? Can you imagine how costly that would have been? The Maserati in the garage, it's going to have to go. The plasma screen TV, it's going to the pawn shop. He's going to have to cancel the winter sports holiday in the snow. It would have come at great cost. But in that restitution, we see this hallmark of true repentance. Doing everything in our power to right our past wrongs. And seeking to restore people to the position they would have been in if we hadn't wronged them. So, that was the fifth point. Restitution. Uh, there's two more. Sixthly, we alter our behavior. Because that is another sign of sincere repentance. It's to explain to the person we've offended, hey, the future is going to be different. And we give them this assurance. And we anchor it in concrete actions or initiatives. We say to them, look, with God's help, I'm going to seek to change this attitude. Or with God's help, I'm going to seek to change this aspect of my character. Or with God's help, I'm going to seek to change this aspect of my behavior. And you know, there's something very practically wonderful about doing that. Because if we list specific goals and objectives, it provides a standard against which our progress can be measured. And that's not just for the benefit of those we've offended, but it's also for our benefit. We can say to ourselves in the future, how am I going in changing in this area? So we alter our behavior. And finally, and most importantly, we ask for forgiveness. Please, will you forgive me? And in saying this, those are the words which bring it to the point where this issue can be closed. Will you forgive me? And when we say that, we're signaling to that person who we've wronged, hey, I've done all I can now by way of confession. And now the next move is yours. Will you forgive me? And we're indicating the responsibility is now shifted from us to them. Now, sometimes others will need time to process their feelings, 
Sometimes people will need time to say, I do forgive you. And that may take a long time, especially where the sins are very grievous. But nevertheless, that is the process that people go through. And that is, of course, if we have been offended, that is the process we go through. When somebody has sincerely apologized, it may take time to process, but under God, we ask Him for the grace to forgive. And when we do that, great freedom comes. So, in conclusion, what we've just seen is the wisdom of the gospel being worked out in real life, everyday life. What we've just seen is God's grace at work in the world. What we've just seen is the power of God to restore relational ruin. And it may be that we have wrongs from our distant past that still lie unaddressed and unrepented of. Uh, Let me ask you, are there issues from the past that God is laying on your heart that still need to be sorted out with others? Maybe an apology that needs to be made. Maybe restitution that needs to be offered. Uh, When I ask myself that question, a name and a face comes to my mind. It's a face from my distant past. It's a face from my high school. And it's a face of one of my year colleagues called Francis. Uh, Francis was a stamp collector, and at the time, so was I. Uh, Francis used to bring his stamps into the school. And I remember one lunchtime, he left his bag and went off to dinner. And I entered his bag, and I removed a set of stamps from his book. And I kept them for myself. He never knew. He knew they disappeared. I don't think he knew you took them. But it was me. I've never acknowledged it to him. And hey, that was over 30 years ago now. 35. I've completely lost contact with him. Last year, our friend, Facebook, flew up uh, on the side margin. A few people who I may want to link to. And one of them was a guy called Francis. I thought, no, it couldn't be the same. So I sent him a private message. Are you really Francis? It is. It's him. And so, my application coming out of this sermon is, because I've been putting it off, if I'm honest, I'm going to send him a message. I'm going to write out a confession using the seven A's, and I'm going to send it to him. And you can ask me how I'm doing on that. Ask me next week. If not got around to it, ask me the week after. But I'm going to. That's an important that I do. That's the power of the gospel. The power to put relational ruin right. And the power to also shine in our lives for God's glory. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for the gospel. Uh, Thank you for uh, the beauty of it and how you bring your grace and your mercy to bear in our lives and how that enables us to transform our relationships. Uh, It rescues us from bitterness and an unforgiving spirit. Uh, It brings freedom in our relationships. It brings healing. And please, we pray, help us to be people who keep short accounts with others we've wronged. Help us to confess sincerely and using the seven A's. And help us, we pray, to bring glory to your name through the way that we conduct ourselves in our relationships, living out the gospel every day. 
Amen.